Well, today I want to begin the sermon in a manner that's similar to how I did the last sermon. If you recall, before we even got to John, which is where we're working through the Gospel of John, I wanted to give you a little back, backdrop. So I want to read from a few places in the Old Testament. If you recall, in my last sermon, we had gone back to the Passover event, and we talked about that history, how the Passover feast came about. If you remember, Israel was down in Egypt, had grown to be a very large portion of the Egyptian population, so much so that the king of Egypt got a little nervous. He feared what may happen if they were to ever side with their enemies and go to war against them. So what did the king do? He set taskmasters over them to afflict Israel with heavy burdens. The king made them work as slaves. He made their lives very bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, he ordered all the sons born to the Hebrews to be cast into the Nile River. It was horrible. Just imagine if you were there. You would have absolutely hated it. You thought working at Starbucks or Hobby Lobby was bad. This is hell on earth. There's no question you would have cried out to God, God, save us from this. They're killing our children. They're enslaving us. They have us doing this brutal work every day. Help us, God. So what did God do? God did exactly what they asked for. We read in Exodus 2, verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Then we read of God sending Moses. He tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Notice here, God not only promised to get them out of Egypt, which is what they asked for, then he promises to take them to a place that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is paradise on earth. God goes above and beyond what they even asked for to begin with. Well, you remember what happened? God sends the plagues, the last of which was the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt. I won't go back over that because we spent some time on that. But in short, that is what finally triggered the king to release Israel. And Israel's off and running. Now, again, I want you to imagine the excitement of that. Imagine you're there. You're finally being freed from all of that. You're being freed from such brutal, back-cracking slave labor. You're being freed from the fear of the authorities coming after your children. 
throwing your sons into the Nile River. Israel certainly got excited. In fact, we read in chapter 15 that they had a little worship service. They sang a song to the Lord. It says in chapter 14, verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and, his, and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Of course, the song goes on. It's much longer than that. I won't read all of it. But they go on to speak of the glorious power of God, of his greatness, of his majesty, his holiness, his steadfast love. And the song ends by proclaiming that the Lord will reign forever and ever. It's a wonderful song. And no doubt if we had all been there, if we had all been through what Israel had been through in Egypt, we would have been right there singing and dancing. It was one heck of a party. But then Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Morah, they could not drink the water of Morah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Morah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Did you hear that switch? It happened that fast. One day, they've got the tambourines out. They're singing, they're dancing. Just three days later, three days, that's all it took. They're starting to grumble to their leader that God appointed over them. And by extension, they're grumbling to God. Because of what? Water. We go on reading. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had, would we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you will 
shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Again, think about this, beloved. Think about where these people were. Think about how they mourned and cried out to God, God, please save us from this. And he not only saves them from Egypt, but promises to take them to paradise on earth. And now here they are fussing and moaning about water and food as if God didn't know this, as if, oh, I didn't know you had to have water and food. The creator of man did not know this. As if God wasn't going to take care of them after all that he had done and all that he had promised. And then we move, we fast forward to Numbers 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, uh, Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over to the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Here we go again. They find themselves in a little bit of trouble. They're not, they don't like it. They run up against another king who wants to take them out. They cry out to the Lord again. They even make a vow. Lord, if you'll do this for me, I will do this for you. And what does the Lord do? He gives them exactly what they asked for. Again, verse 4. For Mount Hor, they set out by the, uh, excuse me, then, verse 4, after he gives them exactly what they asked for, then, verse 4, for Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. We hate it. And I want you to keep this in mind, folks. These are not pagans talking this way to God. These are not your militant, atheistic, pro-choice, pro-Biden, Darwinian, who are out there in the desert murmuring against God and shaking their fists and calling his provisions crap and worthless. These were church folks doing this. This was church folks talking this way. These were the same people who just a little while ago, after they had cried out to God, save us from the, the tyrannical Egyptian king who's got us working as slaves and he's throwing our kids in the river, who were all singing and dancing to the Lord. Lord, we love you. You are powerful. You are mighty. You're majestic. You are great. You will reign forever and ever. Break out the tambourines. Let's sing. Let's dance. And then that all changed to, Lord, we're tired of waiting on you. In a matter of hours, days. Lord, we're tired of you not giving us what we want when we want it. And Lord, we don't know what this stuff is that you've rained down from heaven 
but we hate it. It's worthless. And they're saying all this on the way to a land flowing with milk and honey. What happened? What changed? Did God change? Did God go from being this loving, compassionate, caring God to some mean old ogre that's just setting them up so that he can kill them off in the desert? Or are we seeing the true, deceitful, wicked heart of man here? And Noel, you're absolutely right. Are we learning a valuable and most necessary lesson here about our sin, about our rebellious hearts? These were church folks, people. These were people who professed God. This is you and me. They were all fine and wonderful as long as things went exactly how they wanted it to go. And if you were there watching their singing and dancing and praising from the outside, you thought, man, this is a great worship service. i got to get in on this. These folks really love the Lord. But it was all a facade. If you don't know what a facade is, it's a word that literally means face. They use it in architecture. It refers to the front exterior of a building. It's what you see on the outside in the front but the exterior may not always match what's inside. If you recall, we read in John 2 that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus knew that people were impressed by powerful works of God. But their belief, their faith, was not the fruit of a changed heart. Jesus knew that people would be impressed by his miracles and would even profess to believe in him. But he also knew that many people would see these miracles as a sign of power to fulfill their earthly desires. And nothing more. And Jesus was not deceived by any of it, by any of their outward appearance. Jesus saw beyond the facade. Jesus knew their hearts. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The eternal Son of God knew the hearts of men. He knew it then in his earthly ministry, and he knew it back then in the days of Exodus. All the singing, all the dancing, all the praise was wonderful. But was that truly evidence of a changed heart? Well, God put them to the test to reveal that answer. And all it took was just a couple of days and a little bit of inconvenience in the wilderness. It's not that the Lord didn't provide for them. It's not that he didn't give them water to drink. It's not that he didn't give them meat to eat. It's not that he didn't give them daily bread and even doubled the amount on Friday so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. It was, hey, you're not giving us what we want. 
when we want it and how we want it. And because you're not fulfilling my needs, my desires, you and your provisions are worthless, God. And so I ask you, beloved, are you learning the lesson of Israel? Are you understanding that this is who you are? This is who I am, apart from God getting a hold of you and transforming you by his spirit. Forget what the pink-haired, pro-choice, babbling trans is tweeting on Twitter for a moment. Do you understand that this is you and me at heart, apart from God doing the miraculous within us? Even if you've been baptized almost from day one, you've been at this church every single Sunday, this is who you are apart from God's work in your life. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been to New Orleans. I spent a year and a half down here. They bury their people above ground because of the water levels and stuff. If they didn't, bodies would be floating up to the ground. Beautiful monuments. Gorgeous. People just walk through Cemeteries, taking pictures. You outwardly appear beautiful, but what's going on inside the ground there or in the tomb? You're full of dead people's bones, of all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, what did the Lord do to these church folks back in Numbers? Numbers 21, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You don't think God practices church discipline? Beloved, the Lord has, ha has his ways of drawing out of you what is really going on inside that heart of yours. Irregardless of how things look on the outside, he will expose it and he will bring judgment. But thank the Lord, he also brings salvation. Again, Numbers 21, starting in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. you got to wonder at this point, is this just another, is this the same routine? Lord, we're in trouble. We're not really sorrowful for what we've done to you and offended you. We just don't like the fact that these snakes are running around biting us. So make it stop. Well, Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent, the bronze serpent, and live. And isn't that amazing? Even in the midst of all this murmuring and cursing God and shaking their fist at God, calling his provisions crap, God still shows mercy to many and provides an escape from his wrath. Now, I'm finally going to read our text today, John 3, 13 through 21. And there's really only two major points that I want to bring to your attention from the text. And hopefully, if you've been paying attention, you've already figured out the first point. But I'll remind you if you haven't. But first, let's read the text. John 3, starting in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, as I said, there's two main points that I just want to call to your attention in the remainder of my time from this text. Jesus' comparison of himself to the bronze serpent in Numbers teaches us, one, a very important lesson about sin, and two, a very important lesson about salvation. Now, in setting this up, I've already said much about the lesson of sin, but in case you've been sleeping, let me summarize that lesson for you. We have seen from Israel's example what truly goes on in the heart of man. Even church folks who have not been transformed by his grace. As the Reformation Heritage Study Bible summarizes, the people accused God of being evil, not good, in his ways toward them. They refused to be content with God's good provision of food and turned from it in disgust and ingratitude. The penalty was severe. The fiery serpents brought death. And this is essentially what happened in the fall of man when he was tempted by another serpent. He rejected God's goodness and provision there in the garden and so broke his law, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And we, the fallen children of Adam, validate this hatred of God every time we turn discontently from God's will and choose to sin. And beloved, according to Revelation 21.8, what penalty do we face if we do not look to Christ for salvation? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Beloved, God threatens horrifying eternal punishment against sinners of all kinds, 
and especially against those who do not overcome this world by faith and endurance. And a very large portion of that crowd is going to be church people who cleaned up the outside, but not the inside. Again, listen to what John said. John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, I've said this a number of times. You probably get tired of me saying it. But I want to remind you again, the ultimate reason why people don't turn to God for salvation is not because of a lack of evidence. It is simply naive and ignorant to think that, oh, if I can just prove to my pagan friend that God exists, he'll turn. If I can just come up with the most airtight, logical argument for the existence of God, my pagan friend is going to bow to Jesus. Beloved, Israel saw his works. They were there within inches. They saw the plague of blood. They saw the frogs overtake the land. They saw the gnats. They saw the livestock killed. They saw the boils. They saw the hell. They saw the locusts. They saw the darkness that overtook the land. They heard the loud wailing of the Egyptians when they woke up and found their firstborn sons dead. They heard it. They saw the sea split. They walked through the sea with the walls of water on both sides. They saw the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They saw God close the sea on the Egyptian army and kill them. Then they get to the other side and they dance. They sing, praise the Lord for his power, his majesty, the love, holy. You think they lacked evidence? They lacked nothing. The people of Jesus' day saw the water turned into wine, among many other signs that he did in their midst. And yet, despite all of this massive amount of evidence and miracles, what was going on in their hearts? They loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. There's not even the slightest hint there that our problem is a lack of evidence for God. Rather, we don't want God because we love our sin. We love our rebellion. We love the prospect of being able to control our own lives, to do what we want how we want to do it, and when we want to do it. And if God can't get on board with us, then forget about him. He's worthless. That's our problem. And that's one extremely important, I hope you learn, from this text. 
when Jesus compares himself to the bronze serpent. Numbers 21. But then there's the second important lesson we need to learn. As I said, it teaches is what it teaches us about salvation. Again, there's a nice summary here from the Reformation Heritage Bible. Provision for dying sinners was made in the bronze servant on the pole. The symbolic curse re- reverser took the shape of the curse. Think about that. Serpents were biting them, killing them. God has a serpent raised on a pole to heal them. He's taking on the curse, the shape of the curse. And so God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He had to be lifted up on the cross, becoming the curse. An appropriation of salvation was by gazing at the serpent. Simply having the serpent on the pole was not enough. There had to be the look of faith. Paul says in Romans 8, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's no neutral ground here. There's no people just floating around like, well, I'm not really hostile to God. I just... I lack evidence. No, the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It hates God. It loves the darkness. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And in Galatians 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham may come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so I ask, how does this help you understand your need? to trust Christ alone for eternal life. Again, hear John. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You know, I was telling Pastor JP, it grieves me to no end that there's a segment of people out there who will seize upon John 3.16 to argue their point that, hey, look at that. We're not as bad as we think we are or what those Reformed people say we are. We're not as dead in our sins as they make us out to be. Our hearts are not as deceptive as they make it out to be. Beloved, this is not a text to highlight some supposed fact that there's still something good left in us. This text has nothing to do with highlighting anything about some supposed willpower that man has left in him, despite our fallenness. This text ultimately is not about you. This text is highlighting and magnifying God in his mercy, his grace, his love. This text is highlighting the fact that if it were not for the sovereign decree and electing love of Christ, there would be absolute zero hope for you. That apart from Christ actively working to save us, there would be absolutely nothing you could do because deep down inside, you love the darkness. You love your supposed autonomy. You love living your life as if you're not accountable to anyone. That's what this text is about. No one. Do you hear that? Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except one. He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's the point. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'll close with these words from Calvin. Commenting on no man had ascended to heaven, he says, he again exhorts Nicodemus not to trust to himself in his own wisdom. Because no mortal man can, by his own unaided powers, enter into heaven, but only he who goes thither under the guidance of the Son of God. For to ascend to heaven means here to have a pure knowledge of the mysteries of God in the light of spiritual understanding. For Christ gives here the same instruction which is given by Paul when he declares that the sensual man does not comprehend the things which are of God, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And therefore, he excludes from divine things all the acuteness of the human understanding, for it is far below God. But we must attend to the words that Christ alone, who is heavenly, ascends to heaven, but that the entrance is closed against all others. For in the former clause, he humbles us when he excludes the whole world from heaven. Paul enjoins those who are desirous to be wise with God to be fools with themselves. There is nothing which we do with greater reluctance. For this purpose, we ought to remember that our senses fail and give way when we come to God. But after having shut us out, of, out from heaven, Christ quickly proposes a remedy when he adds that what was denied to all others is granted to the Son of God. And this, too, is the reason why he calls himself the Son of Man, that we may 
not doubt that we have an entrance into heaven in common with him who clothed himself with our flesh, that he might make us partakers of all blessings, since, therefore, he is the Father's only counselor, Isaiah 9, 6. He admits us into these secrets, which otherwise would have remained in concealment. Amen. Beloved, to take one verse, John three sixteen, to take one word, whosoever, and to try to make this text about us, say, oh, there's some sliver of hope within us. If we just muster up faith and exercise our will, it's not only to read into the word whosoever, something that simply cannot be logically inferred, but it is to miss the point entirely, completely. It's to miss what he says there in the text, context, the media context, and it's to miss the whole story, the backdrop of Israel in Numbers. Imagine you get bit by a snake, you're dying. Hey, just exercise your free will, buddy. You'll be all right. Nothing to do with it. No, God had to put up a pole with a serpent and said, look there and I'll heal you. Will you learn the lesson of our sin and of our depravity? Will you learn of our hypocrisy, of our quickness to turn on God in a moment, in a flash, the minute things don't go our way? And will you learn the lesson today that there's no hope within ourselves? And then secondly, will you learn the lesson today that it is Christ and Christ alone who saves? Remember the key scriptures of this gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There is no other. Let us pray.